0: If I had to define it,
1: it is a place that's intended to break people, and not just break people in terms of their associations, but break us in the most basic form. I think every international body and organization and group that has looked at the Pelican Bay Zoo in particular and the notion of, of solitary confinement as exercised in the United States is torture. I mean, I just, I don't know that you could possibly articulate fully like the, the feelings and emotions of being in solitary confinement. you in a completely artificial construct designed to break you. Make no mistake. That is what Pelican Bay is. Like my spirit was put in a locker, and when I came home, I had to figure it out how to connect back to my family.
0: I used to say the system is broken, but it's not. The system is designed and doing just what they wanted it to do. Welcome back to On the Tier with the Berkeley Underground Scholars. Today, we will wrap up our solitary confinement series. In the past four episodes, we have spoken with various organizers to learn more about the history of solitary confinement, how it continues to operate within the California Department of Corrections, and the struggle to put an end to the practice of solitary. But what happens after someone is released from solitary confinement? For this topic, we turn to Dr. Terry Coopers, an expert on the psychological impacts of inhumane prison conditions, and George Via, a shoe survivor and master's candidate in the Community Development Graduate Group at UC Davis. So thank you all for being here. Uh, we really appreciate you spending this day with us. What is your connection to this work? What is your connection to ending the struggle to end solitary confinement?
2: Well, I, this is Terry Cooper speaking. I was finishing my training in psychiatry and community psychiatry in the early 70s. I was the doctor for the Black Panthers clinic, free clinic, the Bunchy Carter Clinic in South Central, Central Los Angeles. The police, along with COINTELPRO, the Red Squad, and probably some military with tanks and bazookas, attacked the Panther office and shot up the office, but they couldn't kill the Panthers because there were thousands of people. This was four o'clock in the morning. We had thousands of people in the street. They took them off to jail. I was their doctor. They went to the free clinic for medical care. In California, there was a law that if you go to jail, you can be seen by your doctor in the jail who can collaborate with the jail medical staff. So I went to the jail and then I said, I'm here, I'm, I wanna see my patients. And we had a big fight, we had lawyers argue it, but I went in, they were in terrible shape. Their IVs weren't running, they were shackled head and foot. Uh, The officers would poke them with their elbow where they were hurting. So I came out and told the press about it. Two years later, the ACLU sues Los Angeles over horrible conditions at the jail and people with mental illness not getting treatment. They asked me to be their expert witness. So I was an expert in the Rutherford versus Pitches case. From then, in the early 70s until I would say the mid-80s, it was crowding. The prisons were at three times their capacity. Crowding is correlated with increased violence, increased psychiatric decompensation, and increased suicide. So I would go and look at prisons and I would talk about all of those negative effects of the way they were crowding. They were also cutting out rehabilitation. In the 80s, prisons were out of control in the United States. There was violence. They called them riots. A lot of them were struggles for liberation, basically. The people in the prison were not given a chance to say what they wanted or were not given their rights. So there were some altercations. Often officers started and started shooting at the at people in the prison. I and a number of people like me said, you know, the problem is the crowding. Crowding's correlated with violence. You got to uncrowd the prisons and you got to put the rehab programs back and they weren't doing that. They were cutting rehab because they didn't want to coddle criminals. All of us, all of the smart, including the radical criminology school at UC Berkeley said, cut the population, reinstate rehabilitation and build programs in the community. They said, we're not going to do this. We are going to find the worst of the worst, the troublemakers in the prison, stick them in solitary confinement. And that began the shoes, the supermax prisons and that kind of thing. I then became a different kind of expert. I had been an expert on crowding and social environmental studies. And now I became an expert on solitary confinement and the awful damage it did.
1: Thank you very much for that doctor. Um, And thank you for all the work you have done. In terms of myself, as I mentioned earlier, I am a product of the SHU incarceration uh, solitary confinement system. I spent uh, over 13 months um, for absolutely doing nothing, not hurting a fly when there was no physical violence. It was a two point system that I have. One was a photograph with my father and my cousin, my blood cousin, who had spent time in Pelican Bay maybe 10 years prior to that. The other one was a, a 1030, a confidential informant of someone who no longer wanted to be in general population. He decided to um, debrief, talk to the corrections, and say that I had a weapon. A weapon was never found. The room in my room was searched. To be honest, the staff there they didn't validate me for that. They waited about maybe a year later when I dropped points to Kalinga State Prison at Level 3, and that's where they decided to uh, use um, those two points to associate me to a prison gang member. And it was my first time being in prison. I was incarcerated for a bar fight, um, hands and feet, you know, saw with a deadly weapon, street terrorism. And But because I had a youth incarceration, the California Youth Authority, those points when I was a young person is what gave me the, you know, level four maximum security, which is where they validated me. I was in Corcoran uh, uh, substance. Substance abuse treatment facility, SADF, which I got zero treatment and substance abuse counseling. Wish I had a doctor at the time hmm. to support us.
0: Wow. So you're saying those points rolled over from from being a youth as a young person into adult?
1: Absolutely, yes. So because the CDC has the R now for rehabilitation, that's a partnership they have with the Department or Division of Juvenile Justice, which I spent over maybe six years in and out of that system, um, which has... Which is why I'm also here because um, not only did I go back and work inside there to to do uh, healing and trauma informed work for the organization Milpa that I work for, based out of Salinas, California, where we you know we can't forget about our young men in there. Go back in there and do a joven noble, which is a noble noble man. How to you know teach culture, how to teach vulnerability, um, and how to you know talk about being a healthier man in society and historical. Context that happen to to educate the young people that are in there, and having lived those shoes, um, I've also have you know um, worked with you know changing the hearts of the way the staff look at our young people. As we know, the brain is not fully developed until you're eighteen to twenty five. So, I have been an advocate to you know end mass incarcerations, which is what we center at Meatball Organization. Um, have you know worked on Proposition Forty Seven the closure of the Division of Juvenile Justice in two, three years, that's 100 years of state youth incarceration coming to an end. Mm-hmm. Where they are now gonna keep the local youth close to home where parents have easier access, it's more affordable. Mm-hmm. You don't have to drive all the way to LA or Stockton. Um, so uh, this is why I'm here to, you know, to tell my story of how inhumane and impunitive was and how it created a process of misery, not only for me, my family, and also my community. And, and you know, 95% of people are returning back. Home. Those are our neighbors. And like Frankie Guzman says, our, our, our friend, the attorney lawyer, you know, why invest in a plane that keeps crashing every time and you keep adding money? It's similar yes. to what you were saying, Dr. Coopers. It's like investing in community, not in, in, in you know, overlapping systems, of oppression.
0: Mm. Absolutely. So Dr. Cooper, what is shoe post-release syndrome? You coined that, right? You invented that.
2: Yes, it was during the Asher case. Let me just say about George, I'm going to embarrass him, that my hat is off to people who went through solitary confinement and came out whole. I know a lot of people. I'm not so worried about the people who come out and, like PTSD um, uh, veterans, they go off and do something violent. Those people are very rare. Most people who come out of the shoe, and this will be part of the shoe post-release syndrome, are recluses. They they retreat into their house. They don't do much. They don't want to see people. So people who come out like George and then become you know, first of all, educated, and second of all, public intellectual. That is so important and so courageous. So my hat's off to you. Thank you. The Ashker case was about what George was talking about. In California, and it's different in other states, the main reason for a long-term in shoe is gang validation. And until the Ashker case, just being accused of being in a gang would get you in the shoe. Then you get in the shoe and you say, I'm not in a gang. And they say, well, we don't care. You give us three people and we'll let you out. That's debriefing or snitch, parole or die is what uh, the people call it. So you're stuck in the shoe. So the um, Asher case was about the lack of due process in that. And one of the things that George already has said that he had is a confidential file where they file everything bad anybody ever said about you. And then, like with you, they spring it on you when they want to. So parole is a favorite time to spring it. And I help people get parole. And they come in and they say, well, we've got a confidential file memo that says he's dangerous. We're not going to parole him. It just goes on and on. I talk to, in depth, 25 people, including the 10 or 12 that were on the short corridor at Pelican Bay Shoe. And this was in preparation to go to trial and challenge the way they put so many people in the shoe. The Pelican Bay Shoe is extremely harsh. It's not a small place. There are 1,500 cells. And it has pods, which have, I think, eight cells upstairs and down, so 16. There's a corridor that has less cells. Uh, Several of the people involved in the, it was a pro se case. That is, it was a lawsuit brought by jailhouse lawyers. Todd Ashker was one of them. There were several others. And what happened is the um, officers rounded up all the people who were active in initiating the lawsuit and stuck them on. One particular pod, which is called the short corridor, and then they gave them special awful treatment Mm -hmm. and tried their best to keep them from litigating, but they were successful. So I interviewed 25 people in depth, multiple trips up there, and in the process, because this went, this came out of the hunger strikes in 2011, 2013. So 2014, 2015, we're interviewing people. Craig Haney was my co-expert. And it turned out that 10 of the people I interviewed, the, the criterion to be in the class was to be in a shoe, the Pelican Bay shoe in this case, for 10 years. Lots of people, I think there were over 500, who had been in the shoe for more than 10 years. Well, some of them had been released and they were either released to the general population or they were released to leave prison and go home. And I found a stunning fact. All of them told me that they retreated into their room. In prison, you're allowed a certain amount of discretionary time when you can come out of your cell. These guys didn't take it. They just stayed in their cell, or if the staff made them come out, they sat by the door of their cell. They did this for quite a while and it was absolutely the same as the people who went home, who were released from prison, who were staying in their room. So a mother calls me and says, I don't know what to do with my son, came home from being in the shoe. He stays in his room. He won't come to dinner. I said, oh, and uh, tell me how long he's been in the shoe. He'd been in the shoe for years. And so we talked about it and I suggested that, you know, he's going through a reaction. Then this is what eventually became the shoe post-release syndrome. He's reproducing his solitary confinement situation and that's what calms his anxiety for right now. So instead of trying to get him to come to the table, why don't you take his food to him, put it by his door and say, we know you're having trouble. We know why you're having trouble is the awful things they did to you. Your food is right by the door. And please, when you're ready, come out because we really want to see you. And that was the beginning. And I talked to one guy after another and found that it was identical situation. They also reported to some degree being afraid to be among many people who they don't know. Uh, So one guy told me, I feel comfortable. I've worked on it for three months but I can finally go to the neighborhood store. I can't handle the supermarket. There's too many people, the lights, all that. Can't go to a concert. So they withdraw from the world. They, they have trouble. And this is one of the symptoms of being in the shoe. They lose touch with their feelings. And my theory is, tell me if you think this is right, George, but I think it's from suppressing anger. One of the feelings that just multiplies in the shoe is anger. So you're sitting in a cell by yourself. The officers are harassing you. And you, you want to give them lip back. And if you do that, you're going to have a worse sentence. So you have to sit on your anger. You sit on your anger and you sit on your anger. Pretty soon, you lose touch with all of your feelings because you're so busy suppressing. And so a lot of people told me after years in Shoe, They felt like a zombie. They didn't know what they felt. They felt dead. That's part of the shoe post-release syndrome. That continues. Then there's uh, startle response, hyper-awareness. They jump when there's a noise because they had to be trained to be ready to be attacked at any minute. So they have these various symptoms which can last a very long time. So I called that shoe post-release syndrome. And since that time, I've had lots of people (laughs) validate that finding. People have discussed having those symptoms, and my colleagues have said it's a very useful concept.
0: Wow, that was a lot. (laughs) That was heavy, but thank you so much. George, do you kind of want to talk about that? Um, does, Does any of that sound familiar to you?
1: Yeah. First of all, like as he was speaking, my heart rate was increasing and I can put myself back into the Tehachapi Shoe Pro. I could smell the air. I can feel the, the walls. I can feel the energy there. And part of what you're saying, you you specifically mentioned the experiences that I had the first day I came home. I went to a grocery store and it freaked me the heck. It freaked me out. My heart rates started increasing. And then luckily I, I happened to see my cousin pass by. I hadn't seen him in years and he's a correction officer at Salinas Valley. Wow. And so my world just like, you know, and, and at the time I honestly had no clue what was happening I just other than like, like, wow, this is this is weird. This is, doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel safe. And then you, you talked about losing touch with feelings. Like, yeah, there's times when, when I got to, I was spent about a year in uh, Atseg in Kalinga prison and I got moved to Tehachapi. I had no property. It was December time. It was cold. It was snowing in Tehachapi mountains. And my neighbors who were from a different group segment, some others all collected things and and brought me, gave me, fished me, Mm. Food, coffee, because I was malnourished, pale. But the mood swings, the, the, you know, staying isolated, I, I was comfortable in myself. Even when COVID hit, I was comfortable in myself. I felt like I could have my, I have everything set up for me, my workout, my books. And the, you know, the, the fear of the unknown, the fear of getting angry at someone and just losing it. Because, like you mentioned, I had, you had suppressed everything. You can't speak out. You can't, you can write a grievance, but, by the time that gets answered, you're in the shoe. Like you, you know, and into into Hatchipi it was, you come out once a week for three to four hours versus the other program. So each Mm HATSEC or or shoe I've learned has different administrative processes. Heck yeah, I, I felt like my spirit was put in a locker. And when I came home, I had to figure it out how to connect back to my family. That was one, that took me a while to, to, to st- and I still have problems connecting back to my family, but because I wasn't around people, phone calls, sunlight, like not even a hug. It it did something to my body where I am I am not the same person I, I was. Before that, I was on a, on a forehead. I was attacked by over 60 plus people, men, other men. And it was only four of my friends that were there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just had to su- suppress it, suck it up. It happened. I knew it. You know, it's, I don't take it personal. It's just part of things that happen in, in incarceration. You think it's normal, but I've learned that like what you've experienced in incarceration you know, even as a youth, you're you're going to feel those those uh, biological, physiological, physical impacts, fragmentations. I feel like the shoe has created a process of misery, and the good thing. Is that like we can heal from that. So I'm going I consider myself Chicano indigenous and I've learned to go back to my roots and learn those holistic practices that have been here. Pre-colonization, sweat lodges, learning about the drum and how the significance of, of being all connected. You know, dry and uncut, like it, it, the, the shoe really messed me up and you can probably hear it in my voice. And like, I know what it feels like when you want to give up and you want to just lose everything that you work hard for. And this is this is why I think this conversation is important to understand how did you get out of that, that psychological slavery syndrome? And, and how did you get out of how did you deinstitutionalize? Like how did you even start like, stop eating fast. Some of us, that's we still can eat fast. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I just want to, like, completely agree with you with what you're telling me about the symptoms. I've experienced every single one of those symptoms. And also, I read some of your research that you've published. And thank you as well for the work that you've done because, you know, that feeling can leave you with your spirit dismembered, fragmented... You know, we need folks like yourself and family engagement and and stories that are not told to be able to stop these inhumane practices. The Department of Corrections, last I heard is Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. What is the success rate of the shoe? There's none. That's why they closed it down. It was a slow, torturous process. And I got to see that in there. I only did 13 months. Mm -hmm. Not a long time compared to all the other, you know, men and women that, that spent in the shoe.
2: This is a, a, a sophisticated way to silence people. It's torture, what, what was done to you. But notice that on average, people who go through that withdraw. They feel broken. They don't, they're out of touch with their feelings. They don't hang out with other people. That's extremely dangerous. It's sort of a shoe is a window into what prisons are all about in this society. They're for breaking people. What they do in prison is they insist on conformity. They have rules. They have more rules than I could even remember. And you have to follow all of them. If you don't, you get punished. And shoe is one of the punishments. And what it teaches you is conformity. There's no critical thinking. If you do some critical thinking, if you have a book they consider subversive, you're going to the shoe yeah. because they seen they, it. they brand you. I've seen it just for a
1: book. Yeah. Passing a book to another person. We you know that person just wanted to read something
2: to learn something. Yes. Again, my hat is off, George and others like him, I want to mention two, and one is Robert King, the other is Albert Woodfox, they're part of the Angola Three. And they've been released after 40 years, 30 for King and 40 for Albert, and they came out with an analysis of what's wrong with this country, how the ruling class is torturing people, and it's people of color, you look in the shoe, you don't find proportionately, you don't find a lot of white folks. It's, you know, black, uh, Latinx, uh, Native American. So something's going on here that this shoe symbolizes in our country.
0: I really, I mean, I could relate to when you both were talking, I was also just, my heart was beating fast. I spent some time in shoe myself, not years, but I spent like about five months. And I just, all of that was just hitting home for me. just like, I I was so sick, like my mental health was suffering so bad. Um, I had gotten so skinny, I had lost so much weight that, you know, um, I think I was going to an appointment or something that people that remembered me from the yard looked at me and they're like, are you okay Mm -hmm. hey like they didn't recognize me because i was like a skeleton but like my neighbors were like passing me food and really just like and then also like my mom having to come visit me Mm -hmm. and see me in that way shackled up it was just it was just traumatizing for me my family for everybody um so yeah thank you both for for sharing that so while we're talking about mental health why is it hard to access mental health in prison
2: uh, first of all, mental health is totally inadequate. The prison population has multiplied times five since the 19, late 1970s. Um, the crime rate hasn't changed much. It goes up or down a point or two, but the imprisonment rate goes up five times. Of that five times as many people, the same sort of five decades have seen an increase in the proportion who are suffering from serious mental illness. I won't get into all the reasons for that, deinstitutionalization. The war on drugs, etc. We as a society have de- first of all decided we don't pay for social welfare um, safety net programs, including public mental health, housing, job training, and people who suffer because of our refusal to take care of their needs go to prison. So we have that people with mental illness is a big, big group of that. The mental health care in prison is not adequate to the task. If the clinicians care and some do and some don't, then they will try very hard to prevent suicide. Usually that means you pull someone out of a shoe cell and you put them in what's called an observation cell, which is another shoe side, a cell with a a glass panel where people watch you while you're naked and you sit there until you're ready to cry uncle and you say, I'm not suicidal anymore. And they say, okay, and they throw you back in your shoe cell. 50% of successful suicides in prison occur among people who are in solitary confinement. That is a well-known fact. And still, they take people from observation and they put them back in the shoe. And that's where they killed themselves. There's another reason why um, mental health care isn't adequate. First of all, the clinicians don't take the trouble to understand the people they're trying to take care of. We're talking about mental health care. They have to have cultural sophistication. They've got the most diverse population in the country. They don't spend any time dealing with the racism that's just all over the place in prison. So the people in prison don't trust the mental health clinicians. And if they did, if they wanted like psychotherapy and supposedly that's offered, they ask for it. They won't get it. They'll get a session or two. Usually it's a few minutes. There's another reason and it's cultural. And that is there's a huge stigma about being weak in prison. So people with mental illness, they're sometimes called dings, other bad names, and people don't want to admit that that's what's going on. So they don't seek mental health care. Also in SHU, and I'm going to let you take over, George, but also in SHU, we have what we call the cell front interview. That is the the rules in the prison in the SHU is if a, a person in the SHU comes out of their cell, they have to be in shackles, not just handcuffs. They have shackle handcuffs behind their back, waist chain. Leg chains and two officers have to pull them out of their cell but possibly accompany them depending on the security level. They don't have the staff to do that and they don't care enough to do that. Mm So they will not take a prisoner from the shoe to a private office where it's possible to have a confidential conversation with a psychiatrist or a therapist. Instead, that psychiatrist or therapist will go see them at the front of their cell. That's what I call a cell front interview. Talk to them through the food slot and the, the people in the neighboring cells and the staff passing by can hear them. So there's no confidentiality and no privacy. So I have people telling me all the time, I'm not to be out it like that i'm not gonna have everybody know that i'm suicidal i'm just not gonna talk to those people
1: absolutely i i totally agree with you and and if i can add you know earlier you mentioned about the issue of overcrowding um and how you know that creates violence it breeds um negative energy. And it also stretches the medical, whether you have access or not. But as you were mentioned, like, you know, there's more, there's more interest in punishment. There's more interest in silencing the the person that's incarcerated versus going and receiving treatment and rehabilitation. Um, it's like, I, I, myself, um, you know, I have a history of migraines ever since I was a child. And when I would get a headache in there, you know, Corcoran gets about 100 plus in the summer. I would get constant headaches and you put in a six slip, you're going to wait at least two three days. By then you're, you know, and the only, you know, aspirin I got was with either I got it on canteen or, or I asked around the population. That's one thing that um, really and and that's not only you know mental health that's education I waited like 6 months I was already a graduate but I still waited 6 months cuz I wanted to do something I want to stay idle in my room all day like most of us are the lack of discernment that people have for folks that are incarcerated you know as you mentioned having the the lack of cultural response to the needs of people that are in, that are incarcerated it's like a therapist who's going to talk to someone with an alcoholic problem and that person hasn't been you know you know it's not gonna to really connect more than, than someone who has had that, that alcohol problem. So it's like that having power and proximity really matters. But when you have that disconnection of culture, of, of diversity, um, like, you know, there were some staff that were really, really like respectful and that, you know, but I never got to see the, the counselor. I never received not one, training or treatment while i was in there i spent most times slammed down because of a missing spoon or something on the other side of the yard a staff got assaulted so we're all punished for that like i said you know there's research that the prisons actually make you they cause more harm and make you worse than you were when you came out of there and like i just you know i think as you mentioned the medical care is inadequate it's also inhumane and it's like it it just would rather medicate you and exp- and and let you, and tell you like oh what's what's what like what's the matter with you or you know why did you do that versus like what happened to you we have to go to the root causes and understand at the bottom well, how are you feeling back then emotions like you say just like that toxic environment in there it's people don't want to talk about that people don't want to say oh yeah I'm weak in my mind we want to exercise to to create consciousness of of how we can stay sane we want to read books to how we can become healthy and not lose it in there and become violent because we know that's, it's bound to happen at the drop of a dime. And I got to experience all of that. Like I was in a level four SATF substance abuse treatment facility, mm-hmm. which sounds really, really great, but not once did I see a counselor. California should be ashamed of themselves for treating people like worse than a, than a, than a dog. I got to feel at the bottom of life what I call society's worst conditions. Like you have out here homelessness, poverty, but then you have prisons and jails, but then you have the shoe. Right. And the worst of the worst I read in one of the reports why are 60%, 50% people are pro parole, parole from the shoe? So how could that be the worst of the worst? But it's the ideology that we've came to label people as criminal or gang members. And, and the you know TV, social media has a big part to, to, to play in this role. So I feel like it's gotta take those closest to the problem, closest to the solution, care, you know, radical kindness. That really works. You make someone feel like they matter more than your job and the building you work in, and you give someone that opportunity, like myself, to say, "Oh, you know, I I can heal. You tell me, I can really love my own self," mm-hmm. and that's what I've been doing. Um, so yeah, that's what that's what I think um, is needed.
0: Oh, yeah. That's so powerful because you're giving so much hope and, and just like motivation for everybody who really can't put their emotions into words, who who are coming home having experienced that and and don't even know that other people are talking about it or that this is a problem. They're thinking this is just me going through this or, or maybe I'm losing my mind. Exactly. So, you know, I really appreciate you putting that into words. How is imprisonment? violent you know the let's talk about the violence of imprisonment in itself
1: i think there's several ways of uh, imprisonment you know displays violence the biggest violent act you know strip you of your human dignity that's one and and what you know dr cooper's talked about and like the conditions of prisons and how in the worstest conditions the correctional still decided to put those men who were having a who are fighting for their, their civil rights to to still you know separate them and they still found a way to you know create an avenue of, of, of a liberation pathway towards justice for families for those that, that they've seen you know hungry and and so like I feel like the training of staff in corrections is also a very violent one is trained to, you know, suppress the problem with pepper spray or, or, you know, um, warnings or, you know, actually there was no, no warning shots. Mm-hmm. So that's also so like the, the militarization ideology, the culture of, of mm, toxic masculinity it's in the walls it's it's all over even the women there have to kind of go with that that flow of toxicity Mm -hmm. and i think the punitive like write-ups that people get anything oh there's your phone call you from your visiting The thing that makes you happy the most Is going to take only because what You were five minutes late from the shower Or you didn't want to get off the phone A couple minutes Hey wrap it up Everyone's locking it in You, you haven't had your full 15 minutes on the phone But there's been a line and It has to do with overcrowding
2: mm-hmm.
1: And that's another thing Also the way you know the, the way you are apprehended The way you know in In um, that the scenario when I was in Corcoran and I, I was attacked, like, like I I know what it feels to be have a boot on your neck when I mean, you were the I don't want to say the victim, but yeah, I was we were the ones that were attacked, mm-hmm. and we still like had, you know, and even after all of that, like, so I used to work for Cal Fire and, uh, as as when I was a young for three years, I was incarcerated doing the firefighter, and then I came mm-hmm. home before the laws passed. I still got hired on, and like. So I got to, you know. Um, so I know about a little bit about first aid. I was an EMT in the past, and so when that that riot happened, as you know, it's very violent and dangerous and you know there was my friends got stabbed and like I had to while I was cuffed you know like apply first aid to my buddy who was stabbed in the neck while his blood was dripping down in him that's violent because you have no staff support
2: Mm -hmm.
1: the staff were running around instigating just you know having that more of that you know either shoot whoever's gonna come up and get up from the right or suppress people well you have victims on the on the floor Mm -hmm. and put us in a shoe yard which is a little yard next connected to the floor Mm -hmm. and we left us there for about 30 minutes and i had to talk to my friend i said don't go into shock and breathe and i i I try to like orient him to you know not go into shock because that could have been Mm -hmm. deadly for him so like just the treatment of of people in there is is it's very violent and the culture and conditions of prison the ideology is very violent and I'll let you add some more.
2: Well, I, I agree with all of that. And actually it's 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 you're painting a very dark but accurate picture mm-hmm. of what goes on inside. Um, I I question the term riot and I've I've been in a few prisons after what was called a riot and I talked to the guys who were involved and they say well they they were pushing together people who are known enemies and they were doing it on purpose to get us into a fight. Mm-hmm. And they, the, the officers did nothing to protect us. When fighting broke out, the officers disappeared. And the officers think it's dangerous. But the other reason is that the beginning is usually people in prison speaking out for themselves and their rights. And the staff come down with force and a fight happens. That fight is called a riot. Why couldn't it be called illegal and abusive police action when people are expressing their right to free speech? And, and, there gets the, the, there we get to the compliance issue again. The hunger strikes at Pelican Bay started at Pelican Bay. There were 6,000 people in prison in California who supported the hunger strikes and there were curse dozens of thousands of people out in the community. Uh, it was led by people in the shoe mm-hmm. on the, again on the short corridor and that's amazing mm-hmm. because everything in the system is an attempt to break people the shoe being the strongest tool they have to break people. To force conformity, but really what they force is deadness. People get out of prison and they don't feel like doing anything. They don't feel that they can be with people. Well, that's what the system wants. So when I go into a shoe unit, first of all, let me say something about the worst of the worst. Most people go to prison when they're in their teens or early 20s. Most go for minor robberies, you know, charges. Sometimes there's violence, mostly not. Then they get caught up in the system. They get beat up. They get put in a shoe. They get broken and they join a dark scene that that does exist in the prisons. And it's terrible. But they're not the worst of the worst. So I go into these shoes and I talk to people. First of all, they're very bright. It is amazing the level of education in the shoe. Forty percent of people in prison are not literate at a fourth grade level. That's research. Well, that's not true in the shoe. What I find is basically political prisoners. These are extremely sharp people who understand what's going on. They can analyze what's happening in society. They want to read Malcolm X, Franz Fanon, etc., but they're not allowed to. And that's who started the hunger strike. A bunch of those guys up at Pelican Bay said, well, we've had enough. We've exhausted. We've, we've grieved everything. We've appealed. They don't give us the time of day. They don't respect us. We're calling a hunger strike. Extremely brave act. Also, it's breaking what the prisons are set up to do. The prisons are set up to make people feel um, sort of disappeared and isolated. Mm -hmm. So here are these extremely articulate, brilliant people in prison who are originating a hunger strike that just took off. And then a lawsuit that we won.
0: Thank you. So George, you seem to be doing really well, seem to be successful, doing a lot of healing work. Do you contribute your growth, your personal growth to being in prison or in spite of it?
1: I would say I do not give prison any credit for any type of rehabilitation or any type of treatment or care. Mm -hmm. It, it, in fact, did the opposite. Um, As I mentioned, the first thing that really freaked me out was like when I'm in reception, I'm thinking, well, I'm here for a par five. I... Did get a strike. Saw a daily weapon, street terrorism, a couple felonies over a bar fight.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I seen the captain, he was like, you know, you're, you're going to, you got 54 points, which qualifies you for a level 4, 180 sign. And my heart rate dropped. I was like, are you serious? And there got to be a mistake. He said, no, no, no. Ever since you were a young person, you had all these, um, these you know, <coughs> fights. I fought a lot when I was a youth, never for disrespecting staff, because I always had respect for people. But in a room full of trauma, that's going to eventually happen. And so... Um, what I, what I give credit for was for um, people in my family who believed in me, people who made me feel like I mattered, people who, you know, um, the organization I work for, Milpa, mm-hmm. was founded by Juan Gomez, who is my buddy and I, who were we were both in California Youth Authority, Preston, it's in Ion, California, which the, the government also closed down for inhumane, you know, and I've been in, in solitary confinement as a youth, mm-hmm. so And, you know, Tamarack is an old 1800 solitary confinement there where you cannot even speak up to staff because majority are white and majority I've seen put hands on you. Mm -hmm. Take your, your only thing you have in your room is your mattress and put it down and Mm -hmm. unless you could trade it for a recreation or or a shower. Mm -hmm. So... You know, going back to your question, it's like with the organization Milpa that we work for, you know, it allowed for us to have a space to come and just to could start the conversation of what happened to you in prison and build up leadership, culture. You know, there's things about culture that you're not going to learn it from from prison, you know, there's no your history will teach you what actually happened. Why aren't you know, why are we going to school every day and you're learning six hours of everything except yourself? Mm-hmm. And so, you know. An elder, Jerry Dale, who works for the National Compadres Network, he's a, I want to say, a psychologist by trade, but an elder indigenous man who, you know, I went to listen to him speak in Salinas, and he was talking about how, you know, we're all sacred and we're perfect just the way we are, and your body can actually heal from dangerous youth or whatever your life experience was. And that made me wanna think more. That made me want to know more, ask more questions. And that's why I I continue to do community-based organizing advocacy, but we needed to work on ourselves first. We knew that monster in there, the sensory deprivation. We know about those majority of those that within five years will, will, will either commit suicide, die, or have some form of homelessness, abuse problem. And so the direction that we have at Milpa is like like honoring our ancestors, like healing and transformation, going back to going to ceremony and understand like that there's medicine in people in, in the words you tell people in, in like sage and cedar, you know, those are all old, old, ancient like medicines that like, you know, the smoke takes up all of your energy and prayers and different cultures around the world practice the same methods of, of holistic healing, going to a sweat lodge. In fact, I'm going to one on Saturday. That's a representation of going back into your mother's belly. The ribcage, those are made out of willows. There's a fire that you burn. It's the male energy. That's where the sun comes up every day. And these processes have been here for thousands of years. And, you know, volcano rocks to a person in society is just a rock. But for us, it's a grandpa. It's a teacher. It has... uh, magnesium and and potassium and vitamins and nutrients that our bodies need you combine those in four elements you dig a hole on the ground get some water that's our women's direction that's our grandma's those are the feminine the life giver energy and you're in there taking care of yourself things that are missing inside of prisons You know, and it does, it's not cheap. It's actually very, it's free, you can't even, people don't charge for that. Like, and so I I feel we need to include the Western medicines that are closest to the problem and closest to the solution and the, the native indigenous you know, uh, holistic practices. That's why I've learned to be vulnerable. I've learned how to cry. I suffer depression so much because of the shoe, mm-hmm. but I learned I, I had to get rid of the things that I was carrying inside ever since mm-hmm. put that child, that youth that was separated from his mom for so many years, that's from 16 to 19, California Youth Authority. Mm-hmm. and to humble yourself because those systems make you violent. You come home, you wanting to feel some form of, of love. You want that connection back. But as you mentioned, it's, 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 it's stripped from us. It's taken away from us. And like, we have to figure it out. So, you know, I, I getting a job, you know, in Understanding that like, I don't have all the technical skills in the world, but I have other strengths and expertise that I can offer the movement. You know, I can get in front of a assembly woman and convince her, you know, ma'am or sir, that system needs to be shut down immediately. It's failing mothers, it's not justice, and it's creating a process of misery. The research is there, but we have to deal with power dynamics. We have to deal with, you know, vilification. Our organization is always attacked. By corporates trying to defund us and get our funders to defund us mm-hmm. because of mistakes, dumb stuff that people make. Not criminal, they didn't commit a crime. And I've, we've learned it's happened to Father Greg Boyle in Los Angeles, the Catholic priest. It's happened to different organizations. And so um, I credit, you know, um, community. You know, uh, our women, our our funders, our our own, our parents, we had to come back and clean up our own neighborhood. And I have my friends, I have friends who were in the strike, on the hunger strike, And, and to this day, like, they suffer from a lot of mental health issues, but a lot of stories that are untold, who's, we're cleaning up our neighborhood. The reason why Selena's homicide rates are down, police always take credit for that, but we have to come back into our neighborhoods and clean it up, clean them up, tell them guys, Don't be giving our young people drugs anymore. Don't be... You know, doing things that's going to harm our community. And we have to be men, become better men. And that's what I, I give credit to, to um, the prayers that people set for us back in those days. All those elders who who, who always put in work for us, who marched with Cesar Chavez and uh, Coretta Scott King. like Those were I'm, I'm I was able to feel love and, and continue the legacy that they left off for us. Because we always have to honor our elders and all the researchers and everyone that have done work to, paint a story and change the narrative.
2: None of this is an accident. This is a purposeful attempt to destroy people. George said two things that when he got out, what helped him was having people who believe in me and people who make me feel like I matter. Why aren't we doing that in the prisons? I mean, we have people in prison who have lost their way. Most come in as youths and we torture them, we beat them, we, you know, make their life miserable, and we put them in shoe. The whole prison system is becoming a shoe. Right now, as we speak, there's a hearing in the Asker Litigation, and it's about how many hours people in general population get um, out of their cell. And we're down to two and four hours a day for people who used to be in the shoe. Now they're in general population, they only get two to four hours out of their cell. It's a purposeful attack on their humanity. And the officers are trained and reinforced to treat them like non-humans. So you can get attacked as an officer for being too familiar with the prisoners mm-hmm. if you treat them with mm-hmm. respect. And it's like we've created a machine. It's not an accidental occurrence. This was a plan and it's about oppression in our society at large.
0: Thank you both so much. Thank you, Dr. Coopers for all your work that you've put in and invested in us and and getting our stories out there. Um, George, thank you so much for being so vulnerable and, you know, sharing this space with us. I know it can't be easy. I know it's not easy for me to talk about all of that. I feel very humbled and honored to share this space with you all and, and, and be able to do this work
1: same here I, I'm also very proud and I know that our our families are very happy that we're doing this work and and those that are not living they're also happy wherever they're at and that they have everything that they need and that we will continue to fight for for justice and those families that weren't able to speak their truth. <laughs>
0: George Via is the director of a nonprofit gym in Salinas, California. To connect and learn more, you can follow him on Instagram at TeamViaBoxing. <laughs>